Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, and welcome to Runners Only with Dom Harvey. On this episode, Rachel Meyer. When he was five, he said to me, Mum, you don't really like food, do you? You just eat pills and drink coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And I just... Oh Oh my God, that must have felt like a dagger to your fucking heart. I reckon. I just... Way to like punch them in the lie. They just... They can't, and isn't that beautiful? They just say what they see. That's it. And that's what he could see. That was my way of coping with pain was I just take painkillers and I don't feed myself properly and I'm not going out and doing anything and chasing any of my dreams. I've just made my whole world smaller to survive. You may know the name. You probably don't. Either way, it's fine. Rachel Meyer from Wanganui is a total badass. But whatever you do, just don't call her inspirational. And she'll explain why during this conversation. As well as being a mum to three kids, Rachel Meyer is also one of the best lower limb amputee paraclimbers in the world. What makes this even more remarkable is the backstory. When she was 16, Rachel had a freak fall from a reasonably small height at an indoor climbing wall and broke both her ankles. Then, many years later as an adult, she decided to return to the spot she loves, the climbing wall, even though it had ruined her life. In 2019, Rachel made the impossibly difficult decision to amputate below her left knee. It's a hell of a journey and a hell of a story, and I can't thank Rachel enough for sharing it, and I really hope you guys like it. Rachel Meyer is a woman on a mission to remind each and every one of us that we all have unlimited potential. I do need to warn you, and it frustrates me to do this, but there were a couple of sound and microphone issues in this episode. I'm so sorry about that. I've been very transparent all along about my journey into podcasting, and I am still learning, and I'm still screwing up. And (laughs) don't worry, it hurts me more than it hurts you every time it happens. I'm hoping this will be the last time I have to do this announcement ever, and in 2023, it's going to be onwards and upwards. But if you listen to it with earbuds, and hopefully it's not too annoying, and hopefully Rachel's story is bigger than any sound issues. All right, let's get into it. Rachel Meyer on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Hey, Runners Only, yeah, yeah, let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. This is Runners Only, yeah, yeah let's get it started. Hey, hey, this is Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Uh, fast paced, slow and steady, anywhere you coming. Uh, just want to connect for everyone who loves running. Hey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Rachel Meyer, the New Zealand paraclimber record holder and just an all-round badass. Is it okay? I've heard you do it. G'day, Rach. How are you? Hi. Kia ora. I've um, heard you on in interviews before and you don't like being called inspirational. Um, so <laughs> can I call you a badass instead? Badass is good. We can do that. Amazing. Just lift that mic up a little bit. So it's, yeah, nice and close. So, um, first of all, before we get into your um, incredible story and what you've been through and what you've done, running, any relationship with running, or not since you were 16? Oh, a really short relationship with running. Yeah. My leg fell off, so, <laughs> that's, <laughs> literally. That's always going to put a dampener on things. I kid you not. <laughs> um, yeah, I tried it. I didn't love it. And um, the leg fell off, and I thought maybe that's just not my thing. 
But you're um you're a, a late life amputee, so mm-hmm. you you lost your leg, your left left leg. Um, how many years ago? It's three three and a half years. Three. So, so you were the age of. Oh, three and a half years ago. Hang on, my math. It's not hard, math. It's Come on, hard. I know you're from Wanganui, but do Peter. 36, 35, yeah, 36. 35, 36. So what, what do you mean? Because I've had, um, I recorded a chat with um, Liam Malone, the um, the Paralympic yes. runner last weekend, and he, he said it like as a kid, uh, there were times where he'd go home from the school cross country or school athletics day in tears because, you know, his leg would fall off or had mm-hmm. finished dead last. Mm-hmm. I would have thought the technology between then and now would have progressed to the point where that shit's not going on. Look, I think the technology is in, uh, the technology is improving quickly, but our bodies are still breakable and mm. we're still fragile, even though we think we're quite resilient sometimes. Um, and unfortunately, with my particular amputation, I've got quite a long residual limb, which is great. That works for climbing. I've got a nice lever, um, so extra strength there. Uh, but it means that it's quite bony and just doesn't really... It's not very durable for high impact. Yeah. Um, at the moment, walking's challenging. So if I could even get to the point that I could walk all day, that would be a huge win for me. It's been four months since I've been walking properly. So. Yeah, that's um, that's another thing um, Liam Malone sort of alluded to as well. He said uh, like when he, when he was in that age where he was going out with his friends, um, he'd need to drink more and therefore get drunker because the pain just of standing up was that it's, much. It's bad. Is that your yeah. – would you agree with that? Yeah, um, I, I definitely went through a phase pre-amputation where the pain was also really bad and wine was a great form of resilience. <laughs> um, and so I switched that out for rock climbing, which gives me a really good hit of adrenaline and yeah. endorphins. And it doesn't make the pain um, completely go away, but it certainly feels quiet when I'm on the wall. I feel like it's just me against the wall and there's something really mindful in that and really therapeutic. And then obviously that buzz that... Then when you go away and you're back in 10 out of 10 nerve pain for 14 hours of a day and 12 hours all night and you're getting two, three hours sleep a night and then getting up in the morning and doing the single mum thing, having that hit of endorphins and adrenaline during the week is really important because it just helps you cope with what you do have or don't have. But the pain's pretty bad. Do you not notice it when you're climbing because climbing's one of those things where you've got to be completely in the moment? There's a lot of that, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm still really scared of heights. So um, I guess the fear of falling maybe makes pain quieter. <laughs> um, you're, you're good enough that you're not falling. Surely it's not happening to you too often. Not too often, but, you know, when I did fall when I was 16, I oh. broke two ankles and that's why I'm now an amputee. So. Oh, fuck, that's really insensitive. Oh, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So gravity's just, been a bit of a bitch in the past and we're not really yeah, best friends. All right, all right. <laughs> Well, this makes it all the more remarkable and, dare I say, inspirational. Inspirational. That, that, you'd, um, that you would get back get back on the horse, so to speak. So do you want to take us back to that? Sure. Okay, so you're 16, you're in Invercargill, um, you go to James Hager's College, and you're, you're, you're climbing. Yes. So this yep. is your sport of choice. That's where I started climbing. Yeah. I was um, in my second last year of high school, and I always found school... I don't know, I guess socially I always felt quite awkward and didn't feel like I had a place where I belonged. I know many people would relate to that, those teenage years, those very vulnerable years. Um, And I just felt like I didn't fit. And then climbing was always this place where there's always such an eclectic group of people. There was no kind of cool kids, nerds, dorks, jocks, whatever. You just come as you are, you leave your bags and your baggage at the door. And then when you're in the gym and you're climbing, you're looking after each other. You literally have 
your lives in each other's hands and there's that really high level of trust right from the get-go. So there's a real sense of family right from the beginning and I was really drawn to that and that, that was my introduction to climbing and then we went off to a competition uh, not too far into our sort of climbing hobby club starting and that was the place where I had a accident in a cool-down period at the end of the competition day. I did a controlled drop in a bouldering fall. A bouldering room, and I. What's a bouldering room? Um, so, for listeners who haven't been climbing, you have two types of climbing. One is sport climbing with ropes. One is bouldering, where there are no ropes, but you do have really soft or professional landing surfaces. The boys in my team, as an example, were doing a somersault off the top of the wall. They were landing absolutely fine. Um, I did a controlled fall very safely with a spotter to help catch me, and my ankle hit a. Very small margin that had been duct taped back together um, and that <sighs> went against me. So that ankle blew kind of out the side mostly. Um, I think there's a bit of skin covering things, but you could see the dislocated, shattered joint. And then I also broke the other ankle at the same time, which makes you very uncool to go back to high school in a wheelchair with two feet in plaster. First of all, Fuck that spotter. <laughs> wasn't the spotter's fault. It really wasn't. Like, he did his job. He kind of, yeah, that was successfully. fine. Okay, how, They're how, not there to catch you. Like, that's okay. the thing. A spotter is there to kind of, you know, make sure your head doesn't hit the ground first. They're there to sort of direct Okay, well, he succeeded off. in doing that. But the, My head is mostly fine, okay. we, th- we think. <laughs> so how, how high is the wall we're talking about? You say you said some of the boys in the class were doing somersaults off it. How, oh, my like feet, five metres? No, God, oh. no. My feet were not even the height of your ceiling. It's like a couple of metres. Yeah, it shouldn't have happened. It was just a freak accident. We have no right. idea why it went so wrong so quickly. And, and are, you in, um, are you in excruciating pain or does like adrenaline kick in straight away? What happens? Um, to start with, I was kind of like, ugh, that felt uncomfortable. Maybe it was a sprain and I went to sit up. Mm. And my spotter did an excellent job of um, crushing me back to the floor and yelling, do not look, don't look. And it that point I worked out probably something had gone maybe worse than it felt. Mm. And then the boys jumped down off the top and as they hit the crash pads, it sort of just reverberated through. And from that point, I clearly remember screaming for a good 45 minutes until the ambulance came. Just, it was just, it was hell. Um, and I don't, don't, I don't know if you've climbed before, but rock climbing shoes are very tight and the laces are very tight. And I remember the paramedics painstakingly untying the laces and you could hear all the bones grating and grinding and me screaming and a friend saying, why don't you cut the laces? And the Ambo guy saying, are they your laces to cut? And I just am completely incapable oh, of responding to anything. <laughs> Relax, if they're, if they're rental shoes, we'll cover it. Just exactly, right? <laughs> Freaking cut the laces. <laughs> Oh my it god! It was rough. Yeah, yeah. Just the way the way you tell it, it's almost so it was almost like a quarter of a century ago. Um, well, it, I mean, it's over half my life ago. Yeah, yeah, but it and feels like it's yeah. There's a lot of stuff in between. Um, yeah. I, yeah, so they put that ankle back together with part of my hip in the end. They grafted bone out of my hip in there, and then lots and we, of metal. And, and what, what do they say to you at that time? So you're in hospital. You think, oh, it's a broken ankle, same as like a broken arm, a broken leg, three months. Back to normal? No, they did not say that. Oh, <laughs> so that, that they made it clear quite early on that it was quite serious. Yes, yeah. So I remember a point where the surgeon came in and they would often talk to my mum, who was by my bed a lot, um, and not to me. But I remember them talking to my mum saying, 
she'll be in a wheelchair when she's older if she wants to have children. So all her pregnancies, she's going to need a wheelchair. This is going to turn into severe degenerative arthritis, which it did, and she's just going to have a lifelong time of problems. So I knew right from the start, but I didn't connect to that. Or I suppose when you're 16, you you're don't. You're 16. You yeah. just think... It's going to come right. Get me back on the wall. Like. Um, was were they saying all these things just in terms of um, just any sort of weight you put on it is going to like hurt and make it worse? Yeah. So I was told, um, don't put on weight. You need to always stay a really healthy BMI. Don't carry anything extra that's unnecessary because that's going to add further damage. Um, and so I guess I was always quite conscious of being healthy and staying fit. Um, and then, yeah, over the years I did develop degenerative arthritis and it, just over the period of, what we're talking, 18 years between that accident and amputation, I had another nine surgeries to try and fix it. And one of them was this horrendous X-fit frame that attached through the ankle but on the outside and through the foot. And I had, I think, about 12 metal rods that went through my shin and my foot and my toes and the ankle and everywhere. And then I was given a pair of spanners and I had to slowly stretch this ankle joint apart myself and the theory behind that was to try and create space for new cartilage to grow which I believe only sharks can do (laughs) Um, I did not do it very successfully so clearly I'm not a shark (laughs) Um, but yeah that was rough I um, was discharged from hospital on a Saturday with that on I think ibuprofen and codeine (laughs) and that was definitely not enough so it was a of a quick trip back to the doctor for a script for something heavier and then I was in that traction frame for four months um, parenting three children, one of them with ADHD and autism. So you're in, from the age of 16 mm-hmm. r- through through the rest of your teens, through your 20s, through most of your 30s, just um, constant pain? Yeah, constant pain if I were to walk um, and as the time went on, needing more and more mobility aids to mobilise. So it went from sometimes I needed a crutch for, like, if we're standing for a long period, if you're standing in line, if I'm at the supermarket, I might take one crutch. And then eventually it was using an eye walk, which is kind of like a prosthetic leg, but you kneel, you still have your legs, so you kneel on like a shin pad thing. It's quite hard to explain to listeners, but straps around your thigh and enables you to walk on something other than your leg people often use it for like a I don't know an ankle break that's a six-week thing um I used that for several years and then I was using two crutches or a wheelchair by the end of it as well right I was just done I I couldn't go on like that was was it always an option that you were told you had or something that could make your life better to remove the the troublesome ankle no, that was a pretty last resort that surgeons are very reluctant to, oh, are they? to do. Yeah, yeah and even, actually, though, even though it would, I mean, it has, it has, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it fair to say it's improved your quality of life? It's definitely improved my quality of life, but it's also come with its own package of okay. chronic nerve pain and, and its own sense of the word disability, I guess. Mm. And that has a huge impact on your mental health too. So. Yeah. Either way, I was going to be going down a path that was going to be really, really, really hard. There was no way out of that. And I knew that eventually I would probably end up with an amputation as an older woman anyway. And I felt that that was a decision I wanted the power over to do while I was young. I was already competing as a para-athlete for New Zealand. I'd done uh, one world championships in Austria 
in 2018 and I came home from that feeling a real sense of I guess contentment with the decision to amputate and that's where I went back to my surgeon I had already asked him and he'd said no but I went back after that event I was like look I've you know worst case scenario I actually have found a way to balance my health and my well-being and activity regardless of whether I do or don't get up on a prosthetic I have this career in competing and that's giving me some sanity um why, like why, did the, why did the surgeon say no? Do they, do they honestly believe the, the pain you were in with the um, troublesome foot would be better than the alternative? Uh, I think because the alternative is so high risk. Mm. So you can manage some of the risks if you go down the route of having um, several fusions within the ankle and the foot. Then that could like slow down the need to amputate. Right. So give you a gotcha. bit more time if that makes sense. Before taking on something where you're severing nerves and putting, you know, your whole inflammatory system in your body under a mm. high amount of pressure. So, so you were for like twenty odd years. You were walking around with like a with like a limp or with a yep. crutch. Yeah, I just didn't walk far, and I felt quite. I think that's the thing that's improved so much with my um, lifestyle now. I always felt like I was on the outside. So, if there was a social group and we were going somewhere and maybe everybody wanted to wander around a garden, even just that little activity of going around a botanical garden, I'd be like, oh, I'll I'll just sit this one out or mm. I'll do the first bit and then I'll sit it out. Um, and I felt like I was just getting to this point where I couldn't connect to my world anymore and the world was getting smaller and smaller and that was my way of managing pain was just to just reduce and then reduce more and then reduce more. And... Um, yeah, then it becomes it's really too isolating. Small. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really isolating. And I I got to this point where I felt I was not showing or modeling to my children good strategies for managing, you know, disability and pain. And and my kids were really wonderful mirrors, I guess. They would say things to me um, that were quite profound and I guess shook me a lot at the time, but helped me to see what I was modeling to them. My yeah. youngest when I was uh, when he was five, he said to me Mum, you don't really like food, do you? You just eat pills and drink coffee. <laughs> and I just... Oh. oh, my God, that must have felt like a dagger to your fucking heart. I reckon. I just... Way oh, to, like, punch them in the guts. lie. They but just... they can't, and isn't that beautiful? They just say what they see. That's it, and that's what he could see. That was my way of coping with pain, was I just take painkillers, and I don't feed myself properly and I'm not going out and doing anything and chasing any of my dreams. I've just made my whole world smaller to survive. And that's not surviving. It's mm. definitely not thriving. And that was the point I decided I would go back well, to climbing 18 years later. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose it's being alive, but it's not really living, is it? That's Yeah, that's the way to say it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, so it was an 18-year break. So you're mm. 16 when it happens, mm -hmm. uh, then 18 years, and then you start climbing again. Mm -hmm. Um which seems like a, a lot of people be like, what the fuck are you doing getting back up there? Was that hard to get back up there after, the, given that's how this, this, this lifelong of like pain and nuisance began? Yep. And also no climbing wall in Whanganui. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is there one there now? No. There's, no. Just, there's where, a little bit go, of a... Where do you go, Palmy or...? Nope, nothing there either. Um, Is there not a climbing wall in Palmy? No. So I can drive to... Uh, New Plymouth for a very short squash court sized climbing wall <laughs> or I can come to Auckland and visit you and go to Extreme Edge. Because um, I feel like they're all over the place in Auckland aren't they? Yeah there's a couple and yeah. then some really great bouldering facilities as well. Right. Um, yeah. 
but no, at the time, no climbing partner either, and a really huge fear of falling. So I rocked up to the Taranaki climbing gym and asked the manager on duty, um, could you point me in the direction of two wahini who will not drop me? Um, and I was on crutches, and I... <laughs> Probably looked like an absolute idiot. Yeah, you're like, what are you up to? <laughs> no, but these women, they sort of looked me up and down and then without batting an eyelid, they were like, welcome and come in. And that's what climbing is. It's always like that. You can have, I mean, you might not even speak the same language as some people. I've climbed in Austria with two, I don't know, 60, 70-year-old Germans who I could not communicate with at all. But you can kind of say, take, rope, give, like the important Carabiner, that's yeah. the only other word I can think of. I'm safe is a good phrase to learn. Um, lower <laughs> or climbing, clipping. Um, that, that's universal for us, but we just still feel like we belong. So these women um, took me in and they became my climbing family to start with and they were the ones that encouraged me. Maybe I could have a crack at New Zealand Nationals. So you, even though you you had all your um, body parts at that point, mm-hmm. you still qualified for the powers? Yeah, I couldn't use the leg um, and I qualified okay. as a reduced okay. power. Right. So I would use my knee and I would use it as a counterweight, but I couldn't step on it at all. From 16 through your 20s, um, getting around with this, not a, you're not missing any body parts or anything, but getting around with this disability, like um, was everyone quite accepting? Uh, was, there, was there teasing or taunting or anything like that? How did, not, how did you feel? Oh... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think my whole life I've dealt with negative labels that people either say kind of offhandedly without intending to be unkind because you just don't know who is barely hanging on mm. right now and, yeah. and what button you're pressing. Um, but, yeah, right from the age of 16, I remember at 16 an adult saying to me, if you were a horse, I would shoot you myself. And his, <laughs> his uh, theory was that I didn't have enough faith or positivity to heal myself in that I, I should just get put down. So Unbelievable. Who from, was it? Like a stranger? Someone you know? I think maybe we won't go there. But <laughs> um, it, it was well, an I'm unhelpful ta- I'm comment. Take it. You, we, we don't have to go there, but I'm going to take it as <laughs> that is meaning it's someone that you know. And that's, someone in a position of power even. who should not say things like that. Well, no one should say that anyway, but l- yeah. least of all someone, in a, yeah, someone that you yeah. know or someone that's in a position of. So from a young oh. age that – the, the sort of negative things that, that I heard now and then. And you just not – or I didn't feel at that age capable of, I guess, filtering for myself and choosing my own labels and, and my own worth and my own value. And that's something I've had to grow into, maybe not until my 30s. Um, as an adult, I heard the words, um, you're just a fucking cripple, I'm not attracted to you anymore. And Who from a partner? I heard the words. <laughs> And I and I had to get to that point where I decided nobody gets to rent space in my head unless I let them. You can say the words, you can do the mean things, but actually it's my responsibility. It's 100% on me whether I let that stick or not. But, mm. that's easy. man, that's hard. It's, that's, um, it's so hard. I love, um, I love that, that saying about, you know, letting people live rent-free in your head, but it, it is easier said than done. You know, yeah. I, I, I was brought up with the slogan, you know, sticks and stones. And I, I talked about this on the podcast with with Matthew Ridge, who's mm. um, you know, he's quite a quite a brash, polarizing guy. And we talked about how n- name calling fucking hurts, and it's, it really it's e- easy to you up. it's easy to say shake it off, or you're not living rent free in my head. But it's easier said than done. And the fact that like you remember those specifics, like mm. decades later, it, it scars. Yeah, I'd say yes. Yeah, scars is a is a good word. 
that's appropriate. But I also look at who I am now and what I'm doing and the ways I'm learning to stand in my truth and own my journey. And I feel like sometimes, yeah, sometimes those scars are also the making of you, maybe. Yeah. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I, I mean, I like these opportunities where I have a platform to share and to, I, I hope, encourage people to turn up the volume on joy because to me, that's how you. You know, you say it's, it's easier said than done to say don't let something rent space in your head. So what are the mental health and well-being tools that allow us to not let someone rent space in our head? Mm. And that's the stuff that I had to learn from rock bottom. And for me it became a matter of running back to the climbing wall where I would hear these really positive things like you can do it, you can get it. And that became such a really loud, verbal, audible voice in my life. Um, and then I would go home and write these positive words on my mirror and I would replay them to myself and I found that I couldn't um, I couldn't empty out those negative words until I replaced them with something positive. It wasn't simply a matter of saying don't think about that, don't let that have space. It was a matter of saying well I'm going to fill that space with something louder and something that carries more power and, mm. and then also just to keep running back to the stuff that makes you happy and that's you know that's why I climb. Um, it makes me happy, and the more I do that, the more capable I feel in other parts of my life. Yeah, what did it do to your self-esteem over those years? Didn't have any. Didn't you? No. The <laughs> almost middle-aged woman that I'm seeing <laughs> sitting in front of me now, the mother of three, the rock climbing champion, I find that difficult to believe. And isn't that amazing? Because there'll be people listening who currently, you know, maybe don't feel they have self-esteem or are questioning their worth or maybe... You know, maybe somebody's listening who's having to put up with that negativity in their life or is in a situation where they're being bullied at work or at home. And and when you're in that, you cannot see that there would possibly be anything brighter or bigger. And I couldn't. And and you're right. that We're talking about two completely different people, and I love that because, one, I've had to fight to become who I am, but, two, I now get to say to people, even if you're in, like, the absolute shittiest, messed up space. Like what you can see right now is not all that there is. And and there is so much more and you, you haven't even imagined it yet. And I never set out to become a New Zealand record setter or a paraclimber on the international world stage. I just, I just went back to rock climbing to find myself again and to get over a really um, traumatic past with abuse and, to give myself a space where I could just be Rachel, not, you know, all these other labels. Mm. Or, um, you know, as a mum, to create some space where I've got my time and I'm putting that mum hat down because sometimes we're not very good at that. Mm. Um, all these all these positive reasons for going back to climbing, but at the time none of it was about becoming an elite athlete. I just needed a piece of me again, and I know – that there will be people out there who feel like they have just had strips torn off them until they're a shell of who maybe they once were. And and I can tell them 100% there is more, that you just just hang on like there mm. is more. Yeah. I, you, you mentioned before about being um, uh, being in a, in a bad relationship. Did you want to you touch upon that or not really? I think the really powerful things to touch on are that um, – maybe the ideals we've built up for ourselves about a happily ever after or a you know a two parent family um, 
they're really lovely ideals and, and sometimes we put a lot of emphasis on them and we feel like we can't break out of something negative because then we're losing that dream or that ideal. But um, I guess that's a journey I've been through where I've learned sometimes the ideal is that we're better apart than together and and um, and I'd l- I want to be a voice for that. So, yeah, when you asked her, I want to touch on it. Yes, but it's also a really hard subject to open up about. Gotcha, and gotcha. I, think, I understand. Yeah. I, I understand. I'm completely the same. I try and be like as open and transparent as what I can with all aspects of my life. But, Absolutely. But I've, as I've grown up over the years and um, can look back and regret some of the things I overshared on the radio, mm. it's like sometimes if there's other people's journey involved, it's mm. not always your story alone to tell. That, yeah, that's it. But I guess the... You know, the important things to focus on are that as women, we have power over our path and we can make positive changes for not just for ourselves or for our children, but for wider family and um, people in our circle. And sometimes that comes down to really, really, really hard and heartbreaking decisions, but mm. that's okay too. Yeah. And it might not feel like it's okay at the time, it is okay and it can be okay and there are services and people who can help. And for me, the first part was just actually my ankle. You know, to be honest, I think it was my ankle that gave me the um, the strength in the first place. I ended up having to see a therapist for that and I was really anti it. I was like, I don't need help. But it became a safe place <laughs> where maybe I could let some walls down and then and I learned to share in that safe place and then I um, – was this so? You talk about going to see a therapist because is this something you had to do? I had to do it if I wanted that expert right. frame on my leg. That was the if you surgeon, wanted the what the the um, big crazy metal expert frame on my leg. Okay, my surgeon said the last patient that I did this on had a mental breakdown, and that's the only patient I've done it on. You're number two. Um, it has only been done five times in New Zealand, and I have a hundred percent fail rate mm. with it, um, just because he'd only done the one. Um, and so I needed that support in place before I went through that right. because it was going to be really traumatic. So how, how many sessions do they do they make you go to? Is it like three hours, two hours? Oh, I don't even remember. Right. But, um, so the reason I ask is um, so, uh, me and um, my ex-JJ, we went through the whole facility, fertility cycle for a number of years. And when we gave up on um, having our own kids and uh, decided to go down the donor path, mm. um, a prerequisite of that is having like a couple of hours of counselling, and they ask you that I hadn't had any counselling, and I was I was like you, yeah, completely anti-counselling at that point. Um, but they ask you questions like, oh, you know, how would you feel like if, um, if 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 your mate later on in life comes along and wants to be more of a father figure in the kid's life? And it's like I felt like I bullshit my way through the couple of hours with the counsellor. Yeah, I knew what I knew what the right answers were and what yep. the wrong answers were, so truth didn't even matter. <laughs> this is so accurate, though, and I like. So by the time I ended up seeing this therapist um, or psychologist, I had been through maybe five or six counsellors and I had bullshit my way through all of them. <laughs> and I would get to the end and they would say, well, you know, you seem really well put together and you've got some good coping strategies for the things that you've shared, none of which were actually the things I needed help with <laughs> because I didn't go there. Um, I don't, and then they would say, "We don't really know that we can help you anymore." And so I'd walk out of there feeling quite proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, you tricked them. You fooled them. Another one, and that was how I went into this next one. <laughs> Do you think they know? Oh, uh, they know. Yeah, they know you're not being completely honest, eh? But that's the thing with therapy: is unless you're willing to take your mask off and be real then they can't help you. And that is the thing with abuse as well, is unless you have got to the point where 
you're willing to accept the help and you're willing to do, you know, the hard things and make the hard choices and to be really vulnerable, which does feel really icky to start with. And, and you know, and you're probably going to lose some friends and it's going to be really, really hard unless you've got to the point that you're ready to do that. Then counselling isn't going to work. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like um, uh, for, I think for, for New Zealand men in particular, um, being vulnerable and having these real walls down conversations are tough. So therapy is a great way to start. <laughs> you Do you know, think it's for men in particular, though? I think I think it is harder for Kiwi men. It's like, um, you, you know, if, if if I notice some like women out at a bar or whatever, like um, they can be almost complete strangers in the same sort of group, and someone will start crying, and then the others will gravitate around the bond to each other. Um, I, I've got guy mates that I've known for a couple of years, and we've never had anything more than a superficial, com- you know, conversation. Mm. I feel like women. I don't know. That's a that's a generalisation. Maybe it depends on the setting. I definitely know circumstances where if a man were to be tearful and emotional, they would be considered really strong. And for, I think that's, for that narrative is changing, isn't it? Yeah, but whereas for women, if we are tearful or emotional about some things, in particular when we're asking for help, we're maybe considered um, too sensitive or too emotional. <laughs> or hormonal. Or hormonal. <laughs> or, oh, it's just PMS. You know, like, you're kind of screwed either way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she said three Pinot Gris. That's, she always does this when she's yeah, on the wine. I think that the dialogue goes yeah, both ways. Yeah. And But, you know, the key point there is that being vulnerable is really important. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like a huge weight off you. There is that old saying, like a problem shared is a problem halved, but it's it's totally true. I mean, unless it's shared on radio and then you probably <laughs> just doubled your problem. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's Yeah, it's funny that you talk about having an abusive relationship because this is not something I've actually thought about until right now, but I feel like um, over the years, on and off, I too have been in an abusive relationship, but it's with myself. Mm, we do that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah have you? Feels like, feels like your situation, like your self esteem, was slowly like chipped away by another person. Um, but you me, it's like I'd um, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd never, I'd, I'd like to think I'd never stay in an abusive relationship like that, where someone else is like belittling me or mm. yeah, being mean to me. Um, but I'll I'll say things to myself that I wouldn't accept from anyone else. We do, yeah. I think everybody does. Yeah, that really. At different do you as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But that's where. Um I think I was saying earlier I got to that point where I have to work out that letting that stuff have space in my head and repeating it to myself is that's on me. That's my responsibility. Um, and for me, I, I have to see it written down. So I will write the opposite maybe of how I'm feeling on my mirror. Um, often it's um, – So like, is it so like fake it till you make it? A little bit. Yeah. So yeah. Like, what do you write on your mirror? Like positive affirmations or? Um, yeah. At the moment, I think I have Himaya uh, Toku, Himanuaro Toku, which is I'm brave, I'm resilient. And um, I I have things like um, be you, do you, for you. Little affirmations that remind me to stay true to who I am mm-hmm. and not to shrink around other people, I guess, and to to embrace those opportunities to use my voice and, and to, yeah, I guess be myself. Mm. But it's really hard to do. And we do beat up on ourselves and we say all sorts of shit. That, like if our, if our kids' friends said that to our kids, we'd be knocking like, on a parent's yeah. door. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, would be, I would be knocking on someone's yeah. door saying, hey, we're going to have a little chat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we're much kinder to other people and it's easier mm. to see that those behaviours and others. And, and that is the trap with abuse is that's why it's hard to get out of because you pick up the 
mindsets and the attitudes that someone else has put on you and you start wearing that like your comfortable outfit and your favorite clothing and you just get up and you go through your day thinking well I am just a fucking cripple that's all I can achieve and so I'm not going to fight for anything else um and at some point you have to decide that's not the outfit I'm wearing today I'm going to wear strong and confident and Mm. capable and I might not feel any of those things but if I put that clothing on as armor and go through my day reminding myself of it, then you slowly grow into that and you slowly become more of what mm. you've, you know, written, written in the path. It, after a while, do you just um, start to believe the narrative that someone else is feeding you? Is, it, is that what it is? Yeah, that does happen. And I think you're in survival mode, so yeah. you're not always making your own choices for yourself. Oh, man, that's so rough. 
Um, what, the, 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 the actual one? <laughs> the OG, yes, the actual Legos. It's very Jeffrey Dahmer-ish. <laughs> what do you mean it's in your wardrobe? Shouldn't it be in the freezer or? No, it's cremated. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that makes way more sense. It's ashes. <laughs> oh, okay, because here it's I am thinking, <laughs> thinking like there's this decaying leg with like blowfly lies on Well, so I had this dilemma. <laughs> We're getting sidetracked, but it's a great sidetrack. I had this dilemma where I felt like, you know, talking about letting go. I was ready to let go, but it's not rubbish. So I didn't want to just turf it out with somebody's appendix and some old guy's prostate cancer. Like, I don't need it to just go up in the incinerator like that. So I kind of wanted to hold on to it. And then I felt, well, you can't, like, I can't put that under a tree in the backyard because one day I'm going <laughs> to sell the house and move on maybe. And then the next family and their mum's going to be at the kitchen peeling potatoes one day and her four-year-old's going to come in waving a leg skeleton <laughs> and then there'll be a homicide inquiry into me but I'll just be off in Europe somewhere climbing. Like, it's going to go bad really quickly. So I rang a crematorium in Wellington. Uh, it was a fairly awkward conversation. I forgot to explain that I was having an amputation and I just rang and basically cold called them and said, hey, uh, I'm calling from Whanganui. I was wondering if you could cremate a leg. <laughs> guy on the other end was like, um, uh, just the leg. I was like, yeah, yeah, just the leg. Uh, a, a human leg? I was like, yes, yes, just a human leg. Must and then something like a radio stitch a, up or something. Well, that or someone's disposing of a body part at like – you know, <laughs> 15, 15 different, different crematoriums. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to quickly oh, I, think, I think the crematorium that, gets, the crematorium that gets the phone call about the head to be amputated. That's probably a bit suspicious. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sketchy. Uh, yeah, so that's in my wardrobe. Where were we? Okay, so I was oh, – I, no, no, I had a good oh, cry. I just, I just want to sit on this for a second. So, <laughs> like, in terms of co- charging you, is it like 10% of a body? Or like- <laughs> that was the question I had to ask. How much is it going to cost me? And then, the next cheaper, question, right? and then the next question was, um, okay, so that's awesome that you can do it and it's not that expensive. In fact, I think the answer was <laughs> – we could probably do it on the back of an actual crematorium when we already have the fire going, so we won't have to fire it up just for your one leg, so right. that'll make it cheaper. And I don't think they charged me in the end at all, which was really kind of them. Um, so you thought it was going to cost you an arm and a leg, but then... I was yeah, able to negotiate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just the leg. <laughs> Not even the leg. Not even the Free leg. Me. Okay. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> Re- refocus. So, okay, so you're excited going into surgery. What's involved? Yes. What's involved with the surgical procedure? Is it a is it a quick operation? I didn't really ask. Yeah, not not my circus, not my monkeys. Just go. What, what do you mean? It completely is your circus. Oh, well, I don't need your... to know the stuff and things about how the. Stuff you and you must know how long you were out for, though. Like, what is it? Like, so they put you. No, I was asleep. Yeah, <laughs> maybe an hour and a half. I don't think it's complicated. But... So, so they just saw it off and and. And then the crematorium comes and picks it up. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm guessing there's something that's involved in, in like creating a stump. Uh, yes. So there should be a um, muscle wrap that comes up over the end of the tib and fib. And that's what I'm having looked at maybe having fixed in the next little bit. Um, I have an appointment up here in a week with a surgeon because my muscle wrap herniated. So I don't have anything between the bone and the skin. It's just like, literally four mils of skin and I'm walking on that. Um, but, yes, that, they cut it off. Right, I had so a cry when they said put the return body part sticker on and then I think I cried when they came in with the blood bank forms and they said you can't go in 
with your last name of Maya, which is really meaningful to me. Um, you're going to have to go in with your previously married name because if something happens on the surgical table and you need blood, we can only give it to you under that name. And I had a big cry and they went away and said, oh, that was just a glitch in our system. We've fixed it. Sorry about that. Unbelievable. But, so that's a, yeah, so, so you, yeah, so it was a name that you're no longer comfortable using. Yeah, and you, so when we talk yeah. about letting go and moving on and how the amputation was a bit of a metaphor for letting go and moving on, it was really quite symbolic for me and I was really – I don't know, I guess it was a really emotional day on so many levels because I could just see how much I'd grown and who I'd become through this journey with this ankle and this disability and who I was still becoming and all the places that I was going to go and, yeah. Amazing. And and so when you get the operation done, so what year are we talking? 2018? 2019. 2019. How old are are your three children at the time? Uh, It's going to be the weirdest thing for a a young kid, your mum – Having having both feet and then only having they one. They were foot. super excited for it. And were they? Yeah. Oh, they must, you must have been projecting onto them. Maybe, but you know, I think I always did this for the little things. It was never about my sport as an athlete. It was always those small moments with my kids. And I remember Quillen, who would have been, I guess, six, seven at the time. Um, he, wait, he's 12 now. He would have been eight or nine at the time. Okay, is he the youngest? He's the yeah, youngest. Yeah, he yeah. had said to me when I came back from my first world champs, he's like, Mum, can't you, like, why can't you? Can't you just take that leg off and get one of those ones that actually work? And then you could stop saying no to me when I ask you to play. Oh, my and God, that's heartbreaking. So that was one of the big motivators for me was I is, is, is that see the, I was so disconnected from my kids because I was in so much pain all the time. And is, that, I, is that the child that also said all you, all you do is like munch on pills and, yes, oh, my one. God, full of the truth bombs. He is such a sweetheart, <laughs> but he's also been making me a flat white on the coffee machine since he was five. Yeah. And he is – oh, he's such a darling. Um, all three of my kids are amazing, but I've definitely got a sweet spot for the boys. And, um, yeah, they're just – I'm an incredibly, incredibly lucky mum to have such amazing kids. And we've had to learn to be a team and we've had to learn that it's okay to not be okay. And we've had to learn to be able to say, what does support look like for you right now? And for me, that's doing that for the boys when they're overwhelmed because Charlotte's disability is so demanding in our family. Yeah, what's Charlotte got? Um, so she has trapped 12, which is a rare chromosome difference. Mm-hmm. She's one of only 30 people on the entire planet to have it. Oh, what does that mean um, exactly? It uh, gives her the superpower of ADHD and autism yeah. and intellectual disability. Um, it's quite severe, or she'll she'll be a dependent for her yeah. for her life. Um, Is she communicative? She can talk. Yeah. She can bird flip you. She can drop the what the f. Oh yeah, all the key um, things. All the, all the essentials things. to get through life. She can do that to her principal. Um, <laughs> and does and does she what's her latest one she's got one real weird superpower where she doesn't really feel pain the same as other people so uh the other morning i woke up to words that no mother would like to hear at 7 a.m on a saturday morning um she was also laughing hysterically at the time so i honestly didn't take it too seriously but probably should have and the words were oh my goodness it's a disaster I need the emergency kit. I'm making footprints with my blood. <laughs> and she literally, she dropped a small, small, like, food colouring jar and then stepped on it a couple of times. And she just thought it was hilarious that she was stomping bloody footprints all through the carpet. And oh. I haven't been walking for four months, so I just hit the floor literally all, like, hands and knees crawling up the hallway at speed to try and get to her. 
And my 15-year-old overtakes me partway along the way because he's got two legs and he's faster. Um, and, yeah, there were, sure enough, bloody footprints on the carpet. So. But food colouring, though, not blood. No, actual blood. Oh, actual blood. Actual blood. So, she doesn't feel pain. Right, right. How bad was the cut? They weren't bad, but as it turns out, feet can bleed a shit ton. How, how did they happen? How did the cuts happen? She dropped a little food colouring jar oh. and she stood on it. Oh, okay. I got you. Oh, I thought it was red food colouring. No. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, not red food colouring. So she she's just got a massive pain tolerance. Yeah. Quirky. Mm, that is a superpower. It's a superpower. But, but we, we do feel pain for a reason. Yeah, this is it. So it can be a bit mm. diabolical. Um, but we quite like using the word superpowered or magical for her or a yeah. bit of a fairy rather than disabled. And that's kind of just how we roll. And, and yeah, like I say, we've learned to say, what does support look like for you right now? I think that's a question that we should ask our friends more often and our family more often and our kids and our partners. And we don't. We just, for some reason, we don't actually ask that specific question. Yeah. Um, but it's a really powerful one. Geez, well, you're in a position to give them some good lessons, aren't you, on things like you know, resilience and, I don't know, persistence. Stubbornness. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the important stuff. Yeah, but hopefully I – I mean, I hope I'm also teaching them to be real and that, you know, this week Max and I, my 15-year-old, we've now and again we've screamed in a pillow together. <laughs> We're just like, we just need a moment. And so we've put a pillow over our face and we've shared the moment and just screamed into a pillow and I, I hope that that's the stuff I'm teaching them is that when you hit the rock bottom, these are some of the strategies that will help you get through. Not to expect that life is not going to be rough or isn't going to deal shit at you because it really is. And sometimes it's 50 shades of messed up. But mm-hmm. if you've got all these tools in your tool belt and if you know how to ask for help, then... Oh, I think, and I think that's good. You've got to be realistic about it. Like I've had um, someone on the podcast and she was like, my, my only wish for my kids is for them to be happy. And I'm like... It's it's just not a feasible state to be happy all the time. You need to accept that there's going to be shit that goes on in your life. And you need to yeah. be armed for that, don't you? So I suppose that's the work you're doing with your kids now. You are either armed for all the shit that's come your way or you've learned and developed the skills along the way. What do you think it is? Along the way. I don't yeah. think I was at all prepared for any of this when I grew up, whatever, left home. Probably had the street smarts of a four-year-old. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, if somebody had told me back then what I would, what a normal day would look for me now, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'd still be here. That I've definitely it would just seem why because it just seemed too hard. I've had some really rough times, and I've had some periods where I felt like I can't keep going, and I've had moments in my life where I thought maybe I should not keep going and I should tap out, and it just feels hard a lot, and you don't think that you're going to make it all the time. But over the years, I guess I've learned to trust myself that even in those moments, I've, I do have some skills and I have people and I have the strategies and I can trust that even if at the time it doesn't feel good or survivable, I just know that it is. Like it mm. has to be and it is. And so I will just keep going. And that sort of became the theme for the World Cup trip that I've just been on in May, June, July. Um we're creating a film with my travel friend, her name's Katie, and we wanted to create this film about continuing even when life just hands you shit. How do you continue and how do you chase the joy in that and how do you create sunshine when there literally is none for that whatever reason or period in your life because those periods happen. You you hit a roadblock and it's just dark and you have to 
make the sunshine. So how do you do that and how do you keep going? And right in the middle of it um, in Austria, a friend of mine back home lost her husband to suicide. And I just felt like there literally was no point to being on the other side of the planet competing and doing this athlete thing and traveling the world when my friends are dying at home. Um, and that's like something that so many people are facing, the grief of that or the fear that that might be them one day or the, you know, battling those constant thoughts that maybe that's a path they want to take. Like for many different reasons, that's a subject that's relevant to us. And I just I just wanted to get on a plane and I wanted to come home. And, um, and we didn't and we decided we'd continue to do it all because we could and and because we had the strength to keep going, and that's the whole point is that it's not actually always about a gold medal or a silver medal or a New Zealand record. It's about continuing when everything's really hard. And out of that, um, you know, we had an amazing trip. Um, we grew. We became different people over that course of the time, and we continued. And I hope that that's a dialogue that, you know, through our film, I hope that we can share that the essence of it is all to continue and that when you're in that big, big, big darkness, just to remember that that's not all there is, yeah. as I touched on before. Yeah, keep moving forward, eh? Yeah. One foot in front of the other. And, uh, yeah. yeah, there's uh, another saying, this too shall pass. And Which it, is so cliche, but it's so true. <laughs> it is a cliche. It's and it cheesy. It's cheesy as fuck. But it's also but accurate, it's really which is annoying. It's absolutely <laughs> true. Like, no... Good or bad, like if you're going through the most amazing time and your life is perfect, you need to pinch yourself and say, hey, it will, it will (laughs) pass. Like nothing stays the same forever, good or bad, but you just need to remember that. You need to remind yourself when um, it's good, which seems Debbie Downer, but. It can do. I think, you know, maybe the phrase is not so much this too shall pass, but like grief in itself doesn't necessarily pass, loss doesn't pass, the person is still gone. But we learn to live with it, mm. and so we um, don't necessarily make friends with grief or loss or trauma. But um, uh, the heaviness of it might pass, and then we learn to continue yeah. with what we have, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think setting ourselves up for the expectation that well, grief is going to pass. It's not. It's going to. It's always going to be a part of you. But there is another but, another one of those cheesy cliches that time heals time heals the wounds, and it, it kind of does. It's like you know, when, when you lose someone close to you through whatever reason, illness, suicide, whatever, the grief is unimaginable at the beginning. You think about them every moment of every day, and then it gets it gets less and less. Mm. I got a, a mate that died of cancer a few years ago, and um, every now and then, like maybe once a month, I'll think of him, and then I'll feel I'll feel like an, a sense of guilt that I don't think about him all that often anymore. Mm. But yeah, life just goes on and it gets further and further in the background. That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? A little it's bit, terrible, yeah. Because I think I, it is, and I, cause <laughs> I, I, I realise. But I think, it's also, kind of, I mean, I guess it just has to be said at the right time. So if somebody's listening now and they're not in that place, I wouldn't want them to think that it's a, you know. Yeah, no, it's fair. <laughs> We're patting you on the shoulder, saying it's fine, it's going to pass. That's not what either of us saying. It's just that, yeah. Yeah, but just hang in there. Okay, so, so this film you've been mentioning, when's mm. when can we get to see that? Oh, what's, well, what's going on with that? <laughs> because the trip was quite diabolical, we've decided we'll continue filming okay. next year. Right. That's um, Katie's directing and filming there, and we both had our iPhones out the whole time, and it was just this 
I don't know, <laughs> catastrophe of us falling over and getting hit by hailstorms and um, hospitals in every country, literally. Um, so hopefully next year goes a little bit better. But again, the point of it is hopefully to create something that, you know, opens these dialogues about grief and mental health and well-being and continuing. So whatever the outcome of that film, um, I, yeah, I think it will be good stuff. Mm. Just yeah. And you, you, so you may have an operation coming up to um, remove a bit more, a bit more of your of your bone, or take your leg a little bit higher. Yeah, I have no idea what um, what revision will be suggested, or if the surgeon may say we really don't recommend any revision at all and this is what you've got so you're going to have to learn to manage um that's that's a possibility but i do have an appointment next week to talk about that and then yeah i guess if there's surgery we'll just power that out as fast as i can and get back on the world cup circuit in may next year power that out as fast as you what does that mean exactly power that out as fast as you can well you, you just said you know, that, last... that you have a little bit a little bit of time off the climbing but I mean, not a lot. Like, well, the, what was it? So, when you had the foot taken off, how? Like, what's the recovery like for something like that? I was climbing six weeks later before I could walk. I competed at New Zealand Nationals eleven weeks later. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So you and, you were climbing before you could walk? Yeah, I just used one leg. <laughs> and then, but, so you, wait, but did you do any training? Or no, was I it was training in hospital. I took my grip strength with me, and I was still going. <laughs> I didn't stop. You don't need legs to do pull-ups. <laughs> oh, but where were you, wait, where were you doing the pull-ups? At home, in right, my shed. Right. I've got like a training set up and oh, I've got... Oh, God, you're a surgeon's nightmare. We've got like little... I've got a fingerboard <laughs> where you can hang on your fingertips and then I'll get my climbing harness out and add an extra 30 kgs of weight to it yeah. and just do little micro dead hangs. So I made it back to the World Championships in France literally five months to the day after my amputation and came forth in the world. That is, when, what was your expectation like before the surgery occurred? Did you think it would take longer than that, or was that your? your... Oh no, I was going. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. There was no right, chance right. I was not going. Yeah. What did the, what, did, what did the surgeons say? Did they say mm, it's unlikely? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Did oh, my GP also say that might not be a great idea? Maybe. <laughs> but he also is very good, and he said. But I also know this will help your mental health and your recovery, and so I will allow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They just, yeah. I suppose they have to like say, "Oh, we don't necessarily approve it." But yeah, the same as the doctor in Austria this year. Um, I had a stump infection, and um, but this time instead of saying, "Oh my God, you need to go straight to hospital and stay there for a while," uh, like the doctor in Germany, he was a um, crankworks lover. He had like eight bikes or something, and rock climbed himself, and he just looked at me and said, "Well." I know that even if I say to you, you should not be climbing in the next World Cup, you're not going to listen to me. <laughs> so instead, I'm just going to tell you, you are not allowed to train. You are not allowed to walk. You are not allowed to wear your leg until the day of the World Cup. And then you may do your two climbs for qualifiers. And if you get there, your one climb for finals. And that is it. That is all you'll do. And you are not allowed to break skin again. If you break skin, you're done. That's it. You're out. So I did my first qualifier climb and I was pretty sure I'd broken the skin. I was like, well, I just don't look. Then <laughs> I don't happen. know that oh, happened. <laughs> and Grow then I did my, next, did my next qualifier and I made it in the finals. And I also did not look for the next two days. I was like, I just if I don't change the dressings, then I don't know what's going on under oh, there. And I God. can 
I mean, they've got your best interest at heart. They do. But I, I think they, maybe they underestimate your determination. Uh, determination and stupidness. Stupidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've it's heard, a very I've, fine line yeah. here, isn't there? So um, back to what we started with at the beginning. Why, why are you so funny about the word inspirational? Why, why does that you – can, I, I can see you even wince when I say it. <laughs> why are you funny about that? Um, it's a really hard question to answer without sounding like an ass. So I guess I can share some experiences that maybe explain it. Okay. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I'm not, I'm not allergic to it per se. Maybe I just have a slight intolerance. I think that. <laughs> Honestly, whenever someone says the word, it's like you've just swallowed a, like a cold <laughs> mouthful of sick. <laughs> I but think it's, a, it's a compliment, right? Like if someone says it and they mean it, it comes from a complimentary place. And I think if someone came to me and said, I was inspired by you to not give up and I was going to give up and I'm still here today because something you said made me think there was a reason to keep going. That's like, I, I live for that. If that's what I spend the rest of my life doing, speaking and sharing and, and giving people hope when they feel like they don't have any, then I'm here for that. Mm. But when you're in the gym and the supermarket and the petrol station and just walking down the street or whatever, and you hear 10 times a day someone say to you, um, oh, you're so inspirational that you even get out of bed in the morning, that's not actually helpful. <laughs> oh, okay, so if you're not and doing also, anything inspirational. Well, even just that that person, I mean, even if I was doing something inspirational, but if that person has not been inspired to become better or or to do something that was hard or to – overcome a challenge or, I don't know, inspired to just be still and be in the moment and be present. If, if they're not inspired to be or do anything, then it is just a word that they're saying. That they probably walk away thinking they've encouraged a disabled person. And Which is patronising. It's quite patronising. Yeah, okay. And I think you have to remember as well that I or we as a, you know, as a community disabled people, we would get that many, many times a day and sometimes quite obnoxiously where people – come into your space, you're having a conversation with a friend and they've sort of hijacked your conversation to come and tell you, oh, I read your article or I listened to that podcast with Dom Harvey where Dom said lots of inappropriate things. Um, did it, did I, he? I, no, he didn't. <laughs> he did. I feel like that's something you would probably do. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 sometimes I'm an ass, but it's accidental. <laughs> that's I, fine. That's why I wanted to know about the inspirational thing. I, I love the, the way I'm, you've explained it. I'm messing with you. I think like the point being it sort of hijacks really meaningful connections yeah. that we need because it is shit and it is hard and we are on Struggle Street and I have I still have days where I have to battle the thought that maybe quitting would be easy and I'm not going to do that and I'm staying and I'm here for my kids and for myself and um, and for everything, all the ups and downs, but it's a battle and to be having those meaningful connections during our day hijacked by somebody who wants to know what happened to your leg or, oh, you're so inspiring, it's it's not encouraging and it's not helpful. So I guess I like to advocate for that in a way that sort of speaks the truth and love, so to speak. Gotcha. Occasionally um, I'm rude sense. about it. But Are you? Well, just at the end of a long day? Uh, when, yeah. Or just, was... a, if, just if you're having a moment, having a sassy moment? I guess both. There was a uh, guy in a petrol station who called it out once and he's, he just – it's the question, like what happened to your leg question, that. I'm like, you haven't stopped to think that this, you know, for me it's not trauma, but someone, it could be 
the most traumatic part of their life and you've just asked a stranger to tell them that story just because you were curious. I think that's incredibly rude. And someone called it out across a petrol station. Excuse me, miss, did you lose your leg from kicking cats? And (laughs) I yelled back, no, I lost my leg kicking idiots who ask stupid questions. And then I walked out of that shop like I owned it. Mic drop. Oh, that's amazing. That is a mic drop. Although that's not a bad line. Like, if you're going to ask a dumb question, at least. You're going to get a dumb <laughs> answer. Sometimes I tell oh. stories. I do like to tell kids that I, I think I borrowed this off another amputee friend. I didn't eat my vegetables and my leg fell off. And usually the mothers over their shoulders are just like, thank you. Because oh, <laughs> they know they're going to get veggies into them for maybe a week till they work it out. Wow. Yeah, um, so I suppose people don't realise how um, – uh, I don't know. They probably think it's like a conversation starter, but they probably don't realize how insensitive. It's a really uh, dumb conversation starter. Uh, it is. If you're, it I mean, kids, I don't, I don't mind. But um, you know, if you're at the gym and you're working out, and some guy just leans over and wants to ask what happened to your leg, I'm like, why don't you start with, "Hi, my name's Dom. Mm. It's nice to meet you. Yeah. Like, get to know me, all yeah. of me." And, and then, we, with- then when they've got your name, fucking Google it and find you out. Google that it. You can. There's so much. <laughs> on Google. <laughs> There's articles online. Um, so many articles. <laughs> but yeah, something you said, just going back a couple of minutes, you said um, yeah, someone asked that question, and you're not particularly bothered about it, but a lot of people would be. Um, are you, yeah, are you, I mean, we, we've talked about it in this podcast, but I'm guessing it's not a nice thing to talk, for you to talk about going back to 16 and Well, I just don't fasting. want to talk about it 10 times a day to strangers. Yeah, That's gotcha. stupid. It's a oh, waste yeah. of my time and energy. And also it's living in the past. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's something with the amputation that I didn't expect because I'd had this injury for so many years. We're talking over a decade. I genuinely um, was exhausted answering the question, when is your leg going to get better? I just I couldn't answer that for the whole rest of my life. That was oh, and it'd be so frustrating for you as well. So, so frustrating. You don't, I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know. I would love it to get better, but it's not. And so I legitimately thought that when I amputated my leg, that would be an end point to that in it. Absolutely. Another like starting point. Another starting point. Um, so, well, I suppose it's like I mean, you've, you've, you're a mum of three, so you have, you have, you have, you get married. People ask when you're going to have a kid. You have one kid. People ask when you're going to have a next second one. one. Second one. Are you going to have any more? You have I a miscarriage, know. and someone asks you in the supermarket, "When are you going to have the next one?" And you square them in the eye and mm. say, "It just died," and it's really awkward. And then you walk out of the shop. <laughs> That's another mic drop moment. Although quite a macabre one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, like um, me and JJ had some fertility struggles and it's, it's a bit dif- different to you, but um, um, I resonate with you in a lot of ways. Like yeah, people would make, make jokes mm. and it wouldn't necessarily bother me, but having to be been to some fertility clinics and support groups and things, mm. I know that it would really fuck up some other people. But mm. people, when they find out that you can't have kids, the thing they'll say is like, oh, well, you're welcome to take one of mine or take a couple of mine. And it like, doesn't bother me, but having been in these in these groups before, it's like, that would really fuck up a lot of people and you don't realise how upsetting that is. I think that as a society in general, we're not very good at slowing down and thinking before we speak. And, um, <laughs> but I think people, people, people say it because they think it's like funny or uh, I, I don't know. But, I you know, know, if we slowed down and thought about it, we'd say it's not yeah. funny and it's not helpful. We, on a, well, with your situation, it's like, okay, hang on, let me think. Maybe something bad happened to her leg for her to... <laughs> Maybe I, you know... <laughs> What's the best to... case scenario going to be? Like a frostbite? I, I don't... Like, Anyone that's lost a leg, there's a there's a fucking traumatic story behind there's it. There's something there, yeah. And and similar with Charlotte, I get people coming up to me saying, "Oh, you're so you know so amazing that you do what you do." I just I couldn't do I couldn't do that. I couldn't have a child with a disability, and I'm just like, 
really? You wouldn't look after your own kid? Like, yes, you would. Mm. You, you would, you do, you do the things. We're not in any of these situations by choice. We're just getting up every day and doing our thing. And so that's where the the repetitive, you're so yeah, inspirational thing starts to, you know, wear you down. Oh, yeah, that. Well, thank you very much for explaining that for me and, and <laughs> probably for a lot of people listening as well. Yeah, I think mindful inspiration is maybe a good good, um, good way to frame it. Being, mindful inspiration? How do you mean? Being yeah. mindfully inspired. Right. So to listen to a nice podcast and to write something down and to go away and put that into practice. Mm. Um, I think, you know, we could all be doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, it's been great to finally meet you. We've been um, bouncing DMs backwards and forwards on Instagram. Yes. Um, great to finally sit, sit down with you. Um, you are a badass, though. Can I call you a badass? <laughs> absolutely. Well, you've, you've been through you've been through a, a shit ton. Some things. Um, oh, just one final question. Mm-hmm. Actually, actually, maybe maybe two two final questions. If you could, if you could go back to say fifteen or sixteen years old, and change you know, the fall and what happened, but then in turn that would change like everything else that's happened in your life since then, and we don't know how it would look now had that accident not happened. Like, would you reverse it? Never in a million years. No, I'd still jump. And for me, it was conscious. Like I chose to let go. I'd still let go because I love who I've become. And yes, I've had to fight to become that person, but I just, like, I couldn't not be who I am now. And and I think we're not very good at saying I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of what I've worked through and I'm proud that I don't carry the same trauma. You know, I can talk about things now without feeling like a victim or feeling like I have these labels over me. I, I choose who I am, and I think that my accident has, through all of that, kind of woven it all together in a really profound way. So I, I, I'm thankful for it, and yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it. Yeah, what an answer! I mean, it's yeah. So I said every little piece of that mosaic leads to like where you are today. That's it. Yeah, yeah. it's like the one thread in a tapestry that just. Mm has carried, kind of pulled everything together in a weird, wonderful, colourful way. Yeah. And and final one, Do you when you dream now, do you still have both legs or do you dream and you've got one leg missing? I can give you the, the, mm. the theory behind this. It takes time, often a number of years, before people that have lost a body part or you know, something has drastically changed, accept it. And apparently when you finally do accept it, that's when you start dreaming as you are now. I think I've dreamed as an amputee right from the start, but for me I was losing the leg, like I was losing it for 18 years and becoming quite disconnected to it for a really long period of time. So it wasn't the same as, say, someone who lost it really quickly in an accident. Um, What is weirder for me is that when I – I don't know, I was watching TV the other day and someone got up out of bed and walked to the fridge. I was like, you're going to fall <laughs> because they hadn't put their leg on. And then I remembered that they have two real ones and don't need to. So it's more that I react the other way. Um, I very rarely expect, yeah. I, oh, wow. Weird, yeah, right? Like it's kind of trippy. Okay, one more question. So, so, so if you need to have a wee in the middle of the night, like, do you just hop to the bathroom? Or? I crawl. I crawl. I haven't, yeah. It's, 
Hopping's quite high impact and in the dark if you're a dysfunctional <laughs> adult. <laughs> you know, you might hop on your leg or something and break an ankle and if you've only got one, you don't want to do that. So you um, crawl. I crawl and if I turn the – like I cannot turn a light on because I would wake my autistic daughter up. So I have to – whatever I do, I have to be able to do it in the dark safely. There's, okay, yeah, hopping sounds like it could be quite noisy And I'm going to do well. it quietly, so kind of stealth mode. <laughs> right, um, right. So I do crawl and I crawl a lot at home. And I've worked out this cool little shuffle for carrying coffee over the lino. If you put a sock on and then you're on lino, it's slippery enough. You can do like a little side shuffle with your foot and get your coffee from the bench to the carpet. And then once I'm on the carpet, I'll crawl to carry coffee. But people don't think about it. When you lose a leg, you kind of lost your arms too. I can't carry, like I haven't been walking for four months. Um, I can't carry my groceries inside. I can't carry food that I've made to the coffee table to like, even put the washing away. So I'm I'm crawling a lot just to get stuff done. Man, there's things like that that you just don't even, or at least I didn't even think about. Yeah, and that's the physicality of, and I guess that's why surgeons don't love to mm, remove body parts, Yeah, is when things don't go well, which they haven't for me, um, there's, a, there's a huge toll on your body and your exhaustion and then your mental health. And then if you're in chronic pain all the time, which I am, um, then you're facing that tired and sleep deprived and just generally quite run down. Mm. Um, but, you know, it comes with the territory yeah. and I still still wouldn't take it back. Are, are, they, are the kids reasonably good at, are they at ages now where they're reasonably good at mucking in around the house? Oh, that's so are amazing. They? Yeah. They, my, so yeah. my 15 year old literally forbade me to get off the couch yesterday. He said to me, um, <laughs> mum, you've overdone it. Um, a couch mum is better than a shouty mum. <laughs> and I think he was just a bit shocked that I was so shouty yeah. the last couple of days. But it's not like me at all. He's like, I, I've realised that I did this to you for a whole year and that wasn't swell, so sorry about that. But um, the lesson of the story here is that you've overdone it, mum, and you just need to rest. So I'm going to step up and... You can just rest and I'll manage, you know, dinner and I'll manage getting Charlotte to bed. And I've had a lot of help in the last month with meals because things have been really hard. Um, and, yeah, really, really hard, kind of a nice big rock bottom. Um, but like I said, we expect, you know, there's going to be times where that happens. Mm. Well, what a and sweet, the kids are amazing. What a sweet yeah. kid. Yeah. It's a really incredible. good EQ. Yeah. Very good EQ. Yeah. Amazing. And that's got to be a, partly a reflection on you and – the job you've done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think we just muddle through and we're learning a lot about each other as we go. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Rachel Meyer, New Zealand paraclimber, record holder, and just all around badass. Don't you dare call her inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're going to make some serious changes yourself and do better. Is that right? Cheers. Yep. <laughs> Love you, Rach. Thanks, Eves. You too. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much for making it all the way through this episode of Runners Only with Dom Harvey and Rachel Meyer. What a badass, eh? And again, as I did at the beginning, I do apologise for the sound issues. Uh, if you made it all the way through, I really appreciate it. And hopefully moving forward in 2023, that will be a thing of the past. I think I've got the microphones fixed, but I'm just the truth is I'm not technically minded at all. And throughout my radio career, this is something I never had to worry about. But with the podcasting thing because it's not a lucrative business yet, I'm having to learn different things. So as well as um, approaching people to speak to, doing the research and conducting the interviews, I'm having to worry about the technical shit as well, which is just not in my wheelhouse. 
But I genuinely thank you guys for being patient and being tolerant and being along for the journey. If you like what you hear, uh, as I say every week, please um, write a review if your podcast platform allows it, or leave a rating, or even better, uh, subscribe to the podcast instead of just listening to it. Something like 70% of people that listen to podcasts just listen to it without actually subscribing, and uh, it makes a big difference to the algorithms and things. And the bigger the podcast gets, the bigger the guests get, the bigger the gear gets, and I can get someone to sort out my fucking microphones. All right, thanks very much. Hope to see you next week on Runners Only with Dom Harvey. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.